welcome to the Faith is Not Blind podcast. I'm Bruce Hafen. Today we're in Oakland, California with Tyler Johnson. Tyler, thank you for coming across the bay to be with us today. It's my pleasure. I said you came across the bay. Where do you work? What do you do? So I, I have a couple different hats at work. I'm a medical oncologist. That means I'm the doctor who gives chemotherapy to people with cancer, and I spend about half of my time doing that. And where do you do that? And I do that at Stanford Medical Center, the Stanford Cancer Center, and then I spend the other half of my time teaching medical students there, uh, teaching residents there, general internal medicine residents, and teaching oncology fellows there. So I do a lot of teaching. So you're a faculty member at Stanford Medical School who specializes in oncology cancer. That's right. That's a pretty interesting job. Uh, and given that, that experience, we're very interested in knowing kind of how you got there and what you've learned, what you've bump, bumped into along the way. You've certainly encountered some questions that have, sure. make, have challenged your, your worldview, your ideas about your faith. Yeah. But you've come through it. You're, you know, you're uh, Bishop of the Stanford Ward, I hear. That's so right. that's a story I think that's worth sharing. Talk to us. Start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and what was your home life like in terms of your religious experience? Sure. So I grew up in Salt Lake City. Um, I have ancestors back many generations on both sides who are members of the church. And in fact, my dad is an amateur church historian of sorts. So I grew up in a home where we had very literally Brigham Young's footstool in our basement and uh, John Taylor's hymnal from his prayer circle at the temple on my dad's uh, bookshelf along with maybe 2,000 church history books. That's great, yeah. So, so it was just in the water where I grew up. So how did that affect the development of your own, your own faith? I mean, there's certainly plenty of faith to absorb from your family. Sure. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny because it actually worked in a sense both ways. What I mean by that is uh, I'm not one, I'm not really given much to dramatic spiritual experiences. I've had a few of those, but, but not many. Uh, most of the meaningful spiritual experiences I've had have been pretty uh, subtle, and it's more in reflection that they grow in importance. Uh, so it's the meaning of the experience, maybe more than the drama. Yeah. Why don't you talk about some of the early experiences that kind of helped shape your faith? Yeah, so the, the one that I uh, was thinking about the most today is when I was probably about 16, I remember uh, this one night, a sort of a culmination of a number of nights before that, where I felt what now, I think looking back, I would probably call, it was, I'd probably say it was the first time I felt existential angst. Of course, I didn't know any of those words back then, but I just felt this deep, unidentifiable sadness. This mm. just sort of, you know, what is this really about? What am I really about? Just what is this? What we mean, this meaning existence? Just everything, yeah. I mean, it was also a time, as often happens when you're a teenager, I think it was a time when, you know, I uh, didn't have a lot of friends at the time. I hadn't been making it into the things I'd been trying out for. I think I'd gotten a grade that wasn't as good as I wanted. I, you know, anyway, so there were some of those precipitants. But, but it wasn't, I mean, I had had sad nights about each of those individual things. This was not that. This was a deeper aching sadness. And uh, 
that I really could not put my finger on. Um, so I remember going to my dad one night and saying, and crying, and saying, I, I just don't, what, what's wrong with me? What is this? Why am I feeling like this? And uh, my dad had a way, and my mom too, of, they sort of took turns of coming through in important ways at crucial moments. And I'll never forget he listened and really listened and then thought for a moment and took down off the bookshelf uh, the hymnal and opened it to Oh My Father and started reading and read a number of things but among them was the line that says and then a secret something whispered you're a stranger here and I felt that I had wandered from a more exalted sphere. And that cut through me like a sword. It was the answer. It was just, I mean, it, it didn't cover the angst or move the angst or disguise the angst. It was like pouring water on a cube of sugar. It just dissolved. And I just knew it was true in some, I mean, you know, I'm some 16-year-old kid, whatever. I probably went and played video games an hour later. But, but in some way that was fundamental and deep, it just spoke to me. And I knew... And I, I try actually to be very careful about using the word no, because that is a very complicated word. But, but I just did. Um, so you identified with the idea that you had, well, Eliza's term is interesting. It's, it's a little ambiguous. I had wandered from a more exalted, so I'm a stranger. I feel like I'm in a strange place. No, and, and that was the thing, is that it, you know, it's not actually, I mean, in a funny way, it's not a purely comforting idea, yeah, right? It's, it's actually sort of a, a melancholy idea. Yeah, but it's echoes of an identity from another place, and that's what you... Well, and, and, but that was the thing that was so important about it, is that it was a recognition yeah. of my melancholy. It wasn't saying, oh, that, oh, you're fine. Oh, it, don't worry about it. That's not real. It was saying, this is real. It, it, yeah, it is and real and it's why. meaningful. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's so, thank you for that, Tyler. So keep going now. How, keep talking about well, your... So it's interesting, though, I feel like in a lot of ways, my dad in particular, so my dad is this church history buff, as I said, and uh, I feel like he's kind of a, I feel like he sort of had a vaccine before almost anybody else had the vaccine. And so I got the vaccine when I was still growing up. Vaccine for? Well, a, a vaccine to help me handle complexity, let's put it that way. So I'll give you an example. Um, so as many uh, uh, listeners, watchers, I don't know what this is anyway, may know, uh, Fawn Brody many years ago wrote uh, uh, a psychological biography yeah, of Joseph no man, Smith. No man, no man history, right. Yeah. Well, so my dad had that on the shelf next to all the other biographies of Joseph Smith. This was before Rust Stone Rolling, but anyway. Um, and then he had right next to it a little pamphlet that Hugh Nibley had written called No Ma'am, That's Not My History which was supposed to be a direct rejoinder to Fawn Brody's presentation of Joseph Smith's life. 
Well, I, one day, I skipped No Man Knows My History, it was much longer than the pamphlet, picked up the pamphlet, and I read it and brought it back to my dad and said, oh, this is so great, I don't even have to read No Man Knows My History, because look, all the things that are in there are answered in this pamphlet by Hugh Nibley, which of course everybody knew was the you know smartest person in the church or whatever. And my dad stopped what he was doing, put his stuff down and said, well, you know, it's complicated. Um, Hugh Nibley, you know, is 1,000 times smarter than I am. And my dad told me he is a brilliant Egyptologist, a brilliant uh, student of ancient languages, a brilliant many other things, but professionally, not really particularly a student of you know, post-revolutionary war, early American religious history. And his rejoinder to von Brody was uh, kind of shallow and kind, and actually didn't really answer the substantive things that she brought up. And I think you can make an argument that maybe nobody did until Richard Bushman wrote his biography. But, but this is the thing about it. If he had instead done whatever I'm sure he was very busy doing, and had said to me, oh, you're right, Ty. Yep, there's there's nothing to see there. Move along. That's just, you know, there's just nothing there. Hugh Nibley is right. Uh, then I think that would have embedded somewhere very deep inside of me, and I would have skipped merrily along my way, thinking that I had solved the complexity of Joseph Smith's life. Mm. But because he didn't do that, I knew from a very young age that Joseph Smith, like most other parts of the church, is really complicated. And, um, but as a consequence, you know, I mean, vaccines are actually really weird, right? I mean, the idea of a vaccine is that you introduce a little bit of a disease into somebody so that the immune system learns how to recognize it and to grapple with it. And then the immune system on its own uh, expands and, and um, sort of mounts this, this arsenal against the disease so that then if you actually ever really get the disease, then the immune system knows how to, how to grapple with that. And so I felt like by the same token, being raised by my dad, when I read Rough Stone Rolling, for example, uh, which is chock full of really complicated things, uh, I felt like, yeah, this is complicated. But you could handle it. But I knew it was complicated. Could, yeah, your immune system was ready for this. Right. Very interesting analogy. Let's go on to your, uh, your medical school training, uh, because I'm wondering how that showed up when you encountered whatever you found in medical school. Uh, you, so I don't know what it takes to get on the Stanford Medical School faculty. What does it take? Well, um, much more in most cases than I have. I think I just, you know, slipped in somehow. But um, so I went to the university. So I went to BYU for undergrad. I majored in American studies, which has nothing to do with medicine. But um, it was important to me to get a liberal arts education, and and American studies really spoke to me. Uh, so then I. Um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia for medical school, and uh, it was different than BYU. So we had, uh, you know, at BYU there were, I don't know, 
however many tens of thousands of members of the church in the student body, and at uh, Penn there were probably, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 of us scattered across all of the undergrad, law school, business school, probably more than that. There were probably some married folks I didn't know, but anyway, of the young single adults, there were probably that many. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I mean, I think that if I think back to it, maybe one of the most uh, complex experiences, if you will. So I remember when I was about seven, we went to visit my father's aunt Caroline. I was obviously too young to understand any of what was really going on, but they told us that she was dying. And so, but she was sitting there with her hair carefully coiffed in a big bouffant, even though she was dying and sitting up in her bed and um, looked completely serene. I don't know what was wrong with her, but it didn't appear to be painful at all. And I just remember, and, and she's, you know, she was as peaceful as if she was getting ready for a trip to Ogden. I mean, she just, you know, could not have been more at peace with the world and God and herself and was just ready to go to the next life. And I remember in having that experience, it just felt as intuitive to me as my own name that, well, of course she would be resurrected. I mean, how, how could she not be? I mean, it's not like she would cease to exist, right, after she died. Well, in medical school, I spent three months uh, painstakingly dissecting a dead person's body, right? And, I mean, dissecting apart every artery and nerve. I held the person's heart in my hand. I hefted the liver. I picked apart the very complicated nervous architecture of the arm. I looked at the person's brain. I cut through the, the bony vertebra to look at the glistening spinal cord, etc. So on the one hand, I mean, that's a fascinating beautiful, I know that's strange to say, but just take my word for it, uh, you know, experience. But on the other hand, that's complicated, right? I mean, so what does Alma mean when he says, not a hair of the head shall be lost? And here we're dissecting the, per I mean, you know, the body yeah. is flayed and mutilated when you're finished with it. Um, what does it mean that we shall be restored to our perfect form? Does that mean that that very same body, those same atoms that make up yeah. that body are going to be restored so again? So how did that complexity about the physical body and your training very vividly described, how did that affect your, testimony is too shallow a word, your religious understanding, your feeling, your comprehension? Did it, did you just kind of take it all in stride or did it add something? Did it make you... See more. Think no, more. Well, yeah. So, you know, I think that, um, so I, I think a lot about fairy tales. We love fairy, everybody loves fairy tales, right? When you're growing up, who doesn't love a good fairy tale? And the reason that you love it is because the characters are carefully delineated, good guys and bad guys, and everybody gets their just desserts. Right? And in the older versions of the fairy tales, the bad just desserts are pretty gory stuff, right? People are getting pieces of their body hacked off and whatever else. But even that seems somehow fundamentally satisfying because the good guys end up married yeah. in the castle and the bad guys end up whatever, right? Um, and I think that when I was young, 
I had a very fair fairy tale understanding of the gospel, which is satisfying when you're young. But as you age, even though I think all of us want to hang on to a fairy tale understanding of the gospel, because there's a part of us that always loves that, that's why people pay so much money to see Star Wars or whatever, um, I think there's a deeper part of us that knows that it just doesn't wash. Fairy tales, in that sense, just aren't true. Life just doesn't work that way. And the gospel, if it's going to be deeply, fundamentally meaningful in the way that the lyrics from that hymn were to me all those years ago, it has to be capable of dealing with a much deeper complexity and a much richer, more meaningful, more complicated way of looking at the world. How has it done that for you? How has the gospel kept up in terms of its maturity, its depth, just what you were talking about, with the complexity you've seen in your education and your practice? Well, so here's the, here's the thing that I think is really the key, is that it doesn't always in the moment. In the moment. And in my view, faith is the willingness to continue diligently doing my very, very, very imperfect best to be a Christian disciple, even in the moments where there is a gap between my understanding and my experience. Now, sometimes the gap goes the other way. Sometimes my understanding outstrips my experience, like that time when I was, yeah, yeah, when yeah. my, well, I mean, I, the, the, the understanding that infused into me in that moment outstripped what I could articulate. Yeah, yeah, I see it, it was right. beyond yeah. my mm. ability to articulate. So that happens sometimes. Yeah. But then there are times when it goes in the other direction, and that gap is very troubling, right? When my ability to articulate my understanding of the gospel seems, for a moment, and sometimes moments are long, seems to fall behind what I am experiencing, that is a, can be a deeply difficult, painful time. But, but, my experience is that if I continue trying my best to be like Jesus, and trying my best to keep my covenants, even in those gap moments, then a sweet peace comes eventually. And by your experience, it sounds, let me just be sure I understand, it sounds like what you mean is you've seen that gap closed yes. enough times that your faith is not just a kind of idle, desperate hope. It's no, the no. result of experience. Yes, it's, but, it, but it is a... It is a um, you know, Moroni says that the witness comes after the trial of yeah. our faith. And in my uh, probably poor articulation, the, the trial of faith is the fact that throughout our lives, you know, um, I actually, I resonate in a lot of ways more intuitively with Alma's way of describing this, right? So Alma compares planting the word in our heart to 
cultivating a tree. Well, there is nothing more boring, more painstaking, and more requiring of faith than planting a tree, right? Like the idea that you can take this little teeny thing you can press between your fingers, you can make it disappear under your thumb, and that you can put that in the ground, and if you do the right combination of things, you and nature and grace and the soil and the everything, over 30 years or whatever it is, we're in California, we have these redwoods that are the oldest living things on the continent, right? All of those sprung from these little seeds as did the, you know, we have people in our ward who have lemon trees that put out so much fruit that they just bring baskets around to the members of the ward to get rid of them. But the point is that that is by definition a faithful, in the real meaning of that word, exercise. And so I would say that cultivating my own faith is, though Alma's talking about a word, not faith, but anyway, but I think it, the principle still holds, is like that. It requires trust that the fruit will come. And yes, I have seen the fruit come and come and come and come. But it, yeah, but it sounds like from the way you're describing it, with that gap and the faith that will fill it based on trust is part of what the Lord wants us to experience. Yeah, because it's going back to uh, the beginning. You're a stranger here. There's a little angst. I don't get this. But you feel something that makes you trust, and then you understand it, and you say, oh, okay, I can repeat that cycle. That's how things grow. Yes, and, and that's what Alma describes, right, is that you have faith. But he describes sort of a big F faith yeah. and a little F faith, yeah. right? So the big F faith is one day I'm going to be standing here in shade eating fruit. That's the big F faith. But the little f faith is if I keep watering this, I'm going to see yeah. a sprout. Yeah, and we need to remember both. Tyler, beautifully expressed. Thank you very much. Appreciate you coming in today. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.